Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the director of a zombie movie set in Silicon Valley called Why Zombinator, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. Today, I'm in San Francisco with Casey Newton, the Silicon Valley editor of The Verge and a host of an upcoming podcast, Converge. We have Casey joining me for several special episodes of Recode Decode this month because he, this Converge is coming, right? Can Co- you go into it just a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. If you like Kara's podcast, I think you might like Converge as well. You know, The Verge has never done an interview show. The Verge, we're, uh, we're fascinated by Silicon Valley. We're fascinated by uh, the people here and the products they make. Where do they come from? How do they see the world? Uh, some of the conversations that I have in my reporting life, uh, for me, are more fun to do than the articles I wind up writing. Mm-hmm. And so I thought if I could bring those conversations to more people, we could have a really fun show. So it's coming together quickly, and we can't wait to share it with you. All right, but are you basically trying to steal my thunder? Is this Listen, what's happening here? Here's here's how I've always seen it. You Patel put you up to it. <laughs> that aggressive. Yeah. There's there's always a healthy editor. rivalry between us Vox yeah. Media brands. Uh, but uh, and I and I love your podcast. And when I listen to it, you seem the most fascinated by money and power. I mm-hmm. think that's what gets yeah. you going mm-hmm. is money and yeah. power. And I love listening to money and power. Mm-hmm. Uh, my perspective in what I'm interested in day to day is a little bit different. I, I truly am fascinated by how products get made and by some uh, by how some of these visionaries see the world. You know, we we get to use their products, but we often don't know where they came from. We right. often don't know uh, about their stories and about you know how they form their worldview. So you know, I want to dig into that. I want to have some fun. I you know I do improv comedy on the side. Yes, I like to tell, to tell jokes. Oh, uh, no. So. So, you know, I, I just like a little bit of fun back and forth. Let's have some laughs. I'm no fun. I think you're a lot of fun. <laughs> Actually, when I can make you laugh, like that is one of the highlights of my day All right. because you talk so fast. Like if I can stop you with a one-liner, like that's a great day for me. Absolutely. And all joking aside, we Casey and I have been talking about how to do this podcast for a while. Yeah, and that's why he's supportive. here and, and the ideas behind it because a lot of the things that are really interesting is the people you don't know in Silicon Valley who create all kinds of things. Absolutely. Um, and so uh, so Casey's going to be here for four episodes, uh, our special episodes, which are appearing on the Wednesdays, um, as, and we have, still have regular Recode Decodes on Mondays. Um, and so we'll four really interesting people that uh, he is selecting, he's hand-selecting. Hand-curated. Hand-curated. Artisanal picks. Artisanal picks. Uh, people, the kind of people he's going to be having on Converge, which is coming soon. Um, and the first one we are having here, the first person we're having is Daniel Gross in the red chair. How you doing, Daniel? He's, he's a partner at Y Combinator for almost a year. And before that, he co-founded the search engine Q, which was bought by Apple in 2013. Before uh, he joined Y Combinator, he was director of machine learning at Apple. Kind of a big deal there. And Daniel, welcome to Recode Decode. And Casey, I'll let you start. Yeah, absolutely. Daniel, thanks for coming by. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. When I thought about a fun guest to have on this very special episode uh-huh. of Recode Decode, um, I thought of a conversation that you and I had in maybe 2013. I, I don't know if you remember this at all. We met at the 21st Amendment Brewery for lunch. I think you One were of San Francisco's <laughs> finest. <laughs> yeah. And you, you definitely could not drink at that point. Perhaps. Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, also it was lunch, so why would we do that? Right. We're why? not in New York. Why, Casey? Why? Well, I'm, I work better when I'm sober uh, most of the time. Um, but but you said this thing to me that stuck with me because, on, like, okay, so how old were you in 2013? You were... I was uh, I was actually 22, so I was... Oh, were you that? Okay. Yeah, I think I was, well, I was turning 22. Right on. Well, you said this thing to me that stuck with me, which was that, because I was sort of asking you, you know, what made you decide to come to Silicon Valley because you grew up uh, in a faraway land. That's right. I'm from Israel originally. And you sort of packed up stakes and you came here to do your thing. And when I asked you why, you said, look, I have a very small chance to change the world, but I do think I have a chance. So why not take the chance? And it just sort of stuck with me because you sort of encapsulated this view I hear from so many of these entrepreneurs who come here from all over the world. And so I wrote a story about your company at the time, and then you went on to do all these crazy things. So when I when I thought about starting up this podcast and, and guest hosting with Kara, I thought, let's check in with Daniel and see, sort of see what he's been up to uh, in all that time. Lord, um, yeah, I have been failing uh, with my goal of changing the world, <laughs> but I keep on trying. Um, um, but it's true 
And um, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to go back to my roots and join Y Combinator to kind of do what YC did to me unto others. Um, so to find promising, interesting people in random corners of the world and to elevate them and to bring them into the fold of Silicon Valley with the hopes that they'll be more successful than I was. Why don't you give your background a little bit just so people who don't know you... Of course. So I'm originally from Jerusalem, Israel, born and raised. Um, and when I was 18, um, I applied to Y Combinator. I was on the precipice of starting to serve in the Israeli army. And uh, I originally I, I got uh, accepted into the interview. Uh, and so they offered to pay half my ticket for the flight from San Francisco, from Israel to San Francisco. Which is like so cheap knowing how much money they have yeah, now, exactly. honestly. Wait, wait, well, half I, their ticket... Back then, in, yeah, back then it was, yeah, it was basically. So it was like to Omaha? Or yeah, what? yeah. That, I think <laughs> New York. it was a $2,000 ticket. They paid, I think, 600 bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, scrounged up money for the rest of it, flew out, thought I would totally fail the interview, but boy, at least I got a discounted ticket <laughs> to San <laughs> Francisco Bay Valley. Area, see stuff. Um, came out, uh, didn't totally uh, fail the interview. They accepted me, although they wanted me to work on a di- completely different idea from the one I applied with. Um, which I was willing to do. Do they just get to impose these things on you? Like- well, yeah, at the time, yeah, they have the leverage. Right. Um, <laughs> because at the time, you were actually the youngest founder ever accepted into Y Combinator. Yeah, um, and that record has since um, been broken by multiple people, but at the time yeah, it was revolutionary. Yeah, that 11-year-old was great, but go yeah. ahead. 11 is now the median age of a Y Combinator <laughs> founder. <laughs> yeah, you, you may soon find us in the ICU. <laughs> I just, yeah. You're washed up gross, but go ahead. Um, so... Um, I uh, got accepted into the program. Uh, it, I, and, and because I started to work on a brand new ideas um, uh, right when Y Combinator started, I kept on iterating uh, through it. And at some point I launched it midway through the YC program. Didn't really get great reaction. And so I was, I was that person throughout the three-month batch that was constantly changing their idea, constantly basically building something new, trying to launch it, see what people thought. And right before demo day the 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 kind of moment where the, the batch, beauty contest yeah the beauty contest right. thank you for summarizing that <laughs> so eloquently <laughs> um, the way your mind works anyway so um <laughs> Uh, I had this idea unrelated to Q, uh, and it was making quite a bit of money from Amazon affiliate revenue. We don't have to get into the details, but Amazon effectively shut it down about 48 hours before demo day. And so I had this tremendous graph of revenue um, that crashed, which sucks. Um, And so I, I went to Paul Graham's house. And I said, look, I don't know what to do now. And he said, well, you kind of, you got three options. You can, you know, get up on stage and not really tell everyone that your revenue is about to collapse. Um, You can defer demo day and do it later. Or uh, you can come up with something brand new in 48 hours. And as he would whisper to me before I went up on stage, the goal is to not let anyone know this is 48 hours old. <laughs> um, so it feels I did, like an episode of Silicon Valley, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah maybe. I've literally never seen an episode, um, so you would have to tell me. It is. Then it is. Oh, thank yeah. you so much, um, I guess. Anyway, uh, I built... Um, uh, I, I basically built Q, which at the time had a, t- a terrible name. It was called Greplin, um, which means a lot to an engineer, but to everyone else in the world just sounds like Gremlin. Um, right. So we ended up changing the name later on. But uh, I, I effectively built a prototype in those 48 hours, got up on stage, demoed it, told everyone it was going to hopefully be the next Google, and um, raised a bunch of money for it, ended up... Wait, this is a 48-hour idea you got money for that you just... I didn't of. get money at Explain that time. Explain what it is. Explain what Greplin is and what it is. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so what I built, um, and, and this ended up becoming a real company, you know, raised real money. Yeah. And it was a cool product, I will say. I liked it. It, it had its moment in the sun. So yeah. the idea was pretty simple. Um, uh, the idea was to build a search engine, but instead of searching the internet, like the public web, we'd search all of your private personal content. So Slack, Gmail, Dropbox, Evernote, Salesforce, Basecamp, whatever you used in one place. So if you're trying to figure out uh, you know, where to get you to, to that dinner party, that the, the location of that event could literally be in three different places. It's a Facebook event, a Google Calendar event, could be an email if it's an Evite thing. And so the idea was you don't have to worry about this anymore, especially on mobile where you know going between, paging between different apps used to be hard. Now it's slightly better. Um, the idea was we were going to kind of unify that experience for you and, uh, and, 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 and let you search through all of your information in one place. Um, over time, we tried to make the app even smarter and we tried to have it predict what you would want to see um, such that you didn't even have to think to search. We were kind of g- going to kind of be this assistant walking behind you with a clipboard that's kind of dishing things out to you, mm-hmm. uh, very similar to Google Now. Um, so... 
we um, we built that out. Um, ended up raising a Series A and a Series B from Sequoia, meeting a co-founder who, to this very day, is a very good friend of mine, um, and built up a team. Um, and we ended up building a really good product and a really terrible business because when you have when when it, in our world, a, a, a user wasn't a row in the database; it was terabytes and terabytes of information we had to mine and process. And so, the only way to really do that and satisfy the unit economics was to build an enterprise product. And we kind of realized at this point, three years into it, that we weren't really an enterprise culture. Um, you can't really take a consumer company culture and just say, well, we were going to start selling to sales folks and all those, you know, all hands were... It's called Dropbox. Yeah, that I was going to well, say. Well, you know, uh, kudos to them for figuring it out because it's hard. It's a hard cultural shift to move from a world where the engineer is the kind of desired card you want to the one where the salesperson is the desired card you want in your deck. Hmm. So... Um, we didn't really have to uh, think that through too much because Apple approached us and effectively offered to integrate what we were doing into iOS and OS X. And so that's what I ended up doing at Apple, both trying to improve Spotlight, Safari, and a bunch of other machine learning teams. Um, and so, you know, for example, today when your iPhone tells you that it's time to leave to an event based on your current location and when you pull up in Spotlight and tries to predict what app you want to uh, run, that that's all my, you know, old team um, and, and some of our old code being integrated. So... I have a question. So when you were building this, did it feel like AI to you at the time? Or, or at what point did you start thinking, I'm working on AI? Yeah, we were pre-AI hype. Way before. Way before. Well, and by that I mean like two years. Neolithic era. <laughs> um, it did not feel like AI at all. Uh, it it felt like uh, predictive search. That's what I kept on calling it in my head. Um, and of course, today, if I was starting this company, I would rebrand it as AI search. And you would have raised 10 times as much money. <laughs> 10 times as much money, <laughs> burned through 10 times as much money, right. mostly with the same amount of people, just increased San Francisco rent prices. Um, but um, yeah, it didn't feel like AI. It, it, it definitely felt like search. And, and, and I think you know, that, that beckons an interesting point, which is in many ways, a lot of this hype around AI um, is, I think, effectively other technologies we've just decided to now repackage as AI. Um, so search companies will now be called AI. Companies, you know, that are really just building, you know, simple logistic regression over, uh, building probably useful stuff, but simple linear logistic regression. Yeah, or stuff that Karen and I do just mm -hmm. for fun. Yes. Yeah, just, yeah. Uh, yeah, just on a Saturday Weekends. night. Yeah, exactly. Um, that, that will be called AI as well. And I'm not sure that's a bad thing. I actually think it's a good thing. And I think one of the byproducts of, of all of this buzzword around AI is um, projects that honestly don't involve breakthrough technologies that just should get funded will get funded now because we're all excited about it, whereas they wouldn't have gotten funded, you know, five, ten years ago. Give an example, ago. not just predictive search, but what fits into that basket? Uh, another example is, you know... Um, there are a bunch of there are a bunch of companies in a bunch of different industries that are selling software that effectively sorts lists better. You know, so one example is you're a large company uh, like Starbucks, and you get thousands of people applying to you with jobs. Boy, it'd be great if you had a more efficient way to wade through all those thousands of people that uh, that are applying based on fairly simple machine learning. Um, previously, when that pitch comes into the room of a VC, I think. It may have sounded kind of boring. Well, it's a slog, resume, whatever. But now they have the opportunity to kind of use this hype around AI. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, the company is like, you know, using um, any of Lewandowski's technology from Google. You know, it's not hardcore AI. Yeah. Um, but they're still able to get funded and they may very well build, uh, you know, a, a better product. And so I think one of, one of the right frameworks in, in terms of how to think about AI today is to really think about it a little bit as like a, at the end of the day, like a database. Um, I think we're all looking for an AI company, but it's more like companies using AI, like companies would be using a database to do various things, you know, in one particular case, sort through resumes better. So it's basically just tricking venture capitalists. Well, I think, I think humans... Which I'm all for, by the way. <laughs> I think <laughs> no humans, problem. at the end of the day, like, I think um, what Elon Musk is doing is, I think, what humans respond to best, which is you create a lot of hype and enthusiasm around something, and then and occasionally you actually create the future just because of the hype and enthusiasm about it. So I'm not quite sure. We could talk about actual technological breakthroughs happening yes, if we want later to. on. 
But I guess my point is, even in the areas where there's no tech breakthrough, it still is probably a net good thing that that stuff is getting funded and those approaches are getting tried. Right. I want to come back to AI real quick. But first, I do want to ask you about this experience that you had as an entrepreneur, because it seems totally crazy, right? Like, like, do you reflect at all on, on this... Uh, thing that you did where you sort of like leave your home at 18 and come to a new country and raise money and, and place all these immense expectations on yourself and then have to grow this thing and then you get three years into it and you're like, I don't know what the business is. Like for people who are listening who want to start their own companies, like can, what what is like the day-to-day emotions of, of that roller coaster ride? Um, the day-to-day emotional roller coaster ride is intense. Um, but the thing you need to realize if you're listening to this and you're outside of Silicon Valley and that all looks hard and unapproachable is that it's very gradual and everyone starts out with very, very humble beginnings. One of the most important things for me coming into Silicon Valley was meeting some of these folks that I thought were titans of the world and thinking to myself, you know, you're not that great. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then realizing that, you know, I, I could do it too. Yeah. And so Feet I, of clay. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so you need to realize that everything is very gradual and everyone who seems formidable at the end of the day started out putting on their pants on the same way you do in the morning. Right. I mean, by having their servant bring them to the <laughs> day. <laughs> right. Uh, that, so, yeah. so in that, we just got a few minutes in this yeah. section, but um, when you think about that, when you did, you've moved rather fast compared to a lot of other entrepreneurs. And we're going to get into the next section about uh, what you're doing at Y Combinator, how you got there. But when you when you were when you think about that, what Casey was talking about, what is the what was the key aspect of getting to that realization for you? And what realization? Are, are Meaning that they that everyone had, they were everyone was fraud. I think that's what you're essentially saying. <laughs> no, I, I think that's you reframing it. But um, maybe that's your job. Yeah. <laughs> um. but they, you know, it is an important thing that people realize that. I mean, I knew Jeff Bezos when he had five people, so it's, I have a very different perspective. And right. now he's the smartest person on earth, apparently. Right. And so, how do you? What, what what does that what does that give you as a when you think like that when you? I mean, it definitely gives me. You know, I, th- I think there's this uh, Steve Jobs quote where, you know, he says at some point you realize you walk around the world and you realize everything was built by people no smarter than you. Mm-hmm. And it that is probably not true. That is to say, I'm pretty sure the architects of, of the bridge behind us was built by someone smarter than me. But it, it I kind of suppress that. And I kind of tell myself that I can do whatever I want mm-hmm. um, because, you know, you, you do meet a lot of these people when they're small and you do realize, you know, but they're not that great. Mm-hmm. And so... I, I think it's actually a sad fact that um, people want to kind of fall in love with heroes. And so as a result in Silicon Valley, um, you know, we have this process where we build everyone up. Everyone's perfect. No one's having a bad day. Everyone, you know, Jeff Bezos is just crushing it all the time on top of windmills, <laughs> breaking champagne bottles. Right. But, you know, he starts out small, you know, yeah. and, and I'm sure he has bad days too. And, and, and it's really important for me to convey this to entrepreneurs or people that think maybe entrepreneurs around the world that um, it's, it's, it's not as hard as it seems and everyone starts out like you. To the extreme at which, I often wonder if I had never gotten into Y Combinator, part of me would like to believe that I would have started a company anyway and I would have been formidable right. anyway. Part of me wonders I would have probably been in the army, an Orthodox Jew married with you know six or seven kids. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Yeah, well, when, that's when are you how they getting roll. started on that? Oh, I'm aware of that. <laughs> anyway, we're here with Daniel Gross, and we're here also with Casey Newton, the Silicon Valley editor of The Verge. And he has a new podcast called Converge that he's coming and he's practicing here on Rico Deco. Getting my reps in. In special episodes. You're doing very well so far, by Thank the way. Thank you. I'm giving you an A right now. Positive um, We've been talking to ne- negative comes next. Um, <laughs> we're thrilled to have Daniel Gross here in the red chair. He's, he's, a, part, he's a new partner at Y Combinator, uh, relatively new. And he founded, co founded the search engine Q which was bought by Apple for a gigantic, ridiculous sum of money in 2013. And we're talking about being an entrepreneur and other things. And when we get back, we will talk about Y Combinator and why he moved there and left Apple. Today's show is brought to you by Airtable. Spreadsheets are built for crunching numbers. Airtable is built for collaboration, and it's flexible enough to keep up with even the most fast-moving teams. Whether you're organizing clients and inventory for a boutique skiing agency or an editorial calendar for a Fortune 500 company, see why more than 30,000 organizations trust Airtable to let them work the way they want. Visit Airtable.com slash Recode to get $50 in free credits today. 
I'd also like to tell you about Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week? Hey, Kara, guess who I talked to this week? I will tell you. Jenk Uger, also known as the CEO and main host of The Young Turks. This guy's been around uh, online, on TV, forever. They're the lefty answer to right? I don't know how you describe them. Um, Jenk will tell you that he's very, very famous. Um, he would like more money for being famous, and he would like a little more respect, and we can talk all about that. It's cool. Sounds great, Peter. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're back with Daniel Gross. He's a, been a partner at Y Combinator for almost a year, and before that he co-founded a search engine, Q, which was bought by Apple in 2013. Um, and we were just talking about how he got to where he got, including uh, calling everything he does AI so that he gets funding. And we're also here with, I'm teasing you, Daniel, relax. Um, we're here also with Casey Newton, who is the Silicon Valley editor of The Verge. And he has a new podcast coming on the Vox uh, Media Podcast Network called Converge. And so he's here practicing getting some exercise in. Um, and so, Daniel, uh, let's, let's, let's keep talking. How did you get to Y Combinator then? You were at Apple. I mean, that's sort of the center of the universe. Center right? of the universe, according right. to Apple. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, was, uh, I was at Apple. I, I know, You're I a love, sassy one, Yeah, Daniel. I'm just learning from you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you've set a good example. Wow. Today. Ten uh, points. Wow. Uh, at see. what point? Yeah. And and at what point did you leave the tribe? I'm just saying, I'm not Jewish. I just I just know a lot of Hebrew. Wow. I know. See, All we're right. going to offer an alternate audio <laughs> track for people who don't speak Hebrew. By the way. Anyway. Uh, um, anyway, yes. So answering your question, how did I leave Apple? Well, I I loved Apple. Um, I still love Apple. Uh, I at some point, uh, you know, my responsibilities kind of reached the point where I felt like I hit the curve of diminishing returns in terms of what I was learning. Um, and I had always wanted to work at Y Combinator. I feel like I owe so much of my career to them. And so it, the opportunity came about to, um, to join and be a partner there and to effectively try to do unto others what they did to me. And so I made the leap. You're yeah. talking about diminishing returns because that's interesting. You just, what does that mean? Because here you are probably the most powerful, richest, certainly richest company on the planet. Yeah. With so much reach and so much influence. Yeah. Um, so Apple is an, is an amazing company. Um, my role in particular involved a lot of cross-functional management, um, which, you know, to those that are new to the game here, that basically means managing people that don't directly report to you, which means convincing a lot of people to do stuff that they don't want to do mm -hmm. where you have no authority. Uh, and over time... Uh, I, you know, I was being given a lot of responsibility and not the authority to do various things throughout the company. And so that increasingly felt like a hill, uh, you know, I, I just couldn't summit. Uh, and so I just felt like I wasn't learning as much as I could. So I, you what know, were you I, supposed to do? What was I supposed to, my charter was it, uh, and, and, and the team is still at Apple doing that, trying to make every single Apple product you use, whether it's your, your tablet, your Mac, or your phone, your watch, smarter. Uh, so doing everything from like automatically keeping your address book up to date by scanning through your email and figuring out on your device without sending any data to Apple servers when someone sends you their new phone number or sends you an event. Um, uh, you know, all the way from that to trying to predict what, you know, app you're going to search for next. And so our charter was, is, was incredibly broad. Um, the, the main problem is uh, you end up having, you build kind of the initial technology set uh, and then you have to integrate it to various other teams. And those teams have their own, you know, set of mm -hmm. responsibilities and goals. And so this end up becoming this constant push and pull of Daniel and the machine learning guys you know, and suddenly now need time for my team. You know, I don't want to do that. I just want to make the address book prettier or something like that. And so right. th that ended up being slightly frustrating. It's a good way to describe problems, big yeah. companies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you, you head to Y Combinator where you'd had this experience. It's sort of given you your start. Uh, for people who are maybe less familiar with it, like talk a little bit about what Y Combinator is and, and why it's a, a special enough place for you to spend some time there. Yeah, so the way Y Combinator works is twice a year, we fund companies in batches. Uh, and uh, our recent batch uh, was 150 companies, give or take. Uh, and so we do this once in the winter and once in the summer. And the way it works is you go online, you fill out an application, you tell us what you're building. Uh, and uh, you record a short video with yourself as well. And if that works out, we invite you to interview. And if that works out, we end up funding your company um, and give your company $120,000. Um, you then spend three months going through the program where you're basically taught 
hopefully to avoid the com- very, very common 10,000 mistakes people make when starting companies. And it turns out that regardless of what you're building, whether you're working on gene editing or AI or the merger of both, um, uh, they're very common kind of repeated mistakes. So we try to help you avoid that. And then the uh, program culminates in this day called Demo Day where you get to go up on stage to Kara's point, it's a beauty pageant, and you um, talk it's, about- It's a lot of big investors, big names A lot of, a lot of big, big investors. I mean, I happen to think the best investors in the world show up and um, you kind of pitch what you're doing and you know, uh, many companies end up raising millions of dollars uh, at a demo day. All right, I'll call it the voice then, whatever you want. Sure, yeah, <laughs> that seems more... Um, but it is, you well, have to impress them with your presentation. You have to impress them with your presentation, you have to impress them with what you're building, um, and then you end up you know, raising money uh, out of demo day. The relationship with Y Combinator continues as your company continues to grow. We, a couple of years ago, we raised uh, a fund called the uh, YC Continuity Fund where we try to continue to invest alongside you in future rounds as well as try to help people avoid you know, the whole other set of mistakes that you, that, that you commonly make, not when you have five people on your team, but when you have 50 or so. So the idea is to really help um, uh, you know, both find and support, you know, the next generation of the, you know, the next 10,000 entrepreneurs. And so. it's global, right? It's global. Um, we ask that at the end of the day, everyone, at least for, for the duration of the program, comes to Mountain View where we host it. Um, but we'll, we've accepted people from, you know, many, many, many different countries. The reason to go through that um, are... First, if you're not from Silicon Valley, coming here and not knowing anyone is quite challenging. It's a very network-driven kind of economy. You need to know the right people um, in order to gain access to various things. And I think why Combinator is probably the finest vehicle that we have in Silicon Valley to kind of bring outsiders in. Second is I do believe the curriculum is genuinely valuable. It was valuable for me. Um, weirdly, it was valuable for me in this non-intuitive way where it was emotionally very valuable. So in, I was kind of alone throughout some of the program building stuff, and it was really useful, you know, meeting the various partners and not in the sense that the strategy that I was given was that useful, but in the sense that I just walked in feeling dejected and broken and walked out feeling like a million bucks. Um, and it's, this will make more sense to someone who's gone through the program. It's a little bit like, I don't know, describing a marathon to someone. Uh, lastly, the network, Y Combinator's network is quite useful, both in the sense that the, the active founders um, in YC, you know, occasionally are running multi-billion dollar uh, companies like Dropbox or Stripe, or Coinbase, um, or Airbnb, most notably. Um, but also there's this, this whole cadre of folks that started a company, got acquired, kind of like I was at Apple, that are executives at a large company. So um, there are many reasons why I think why Combinator is useful, but, but I think those are probably the, the major ones. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of become Silicon Valley's Harvard. Like, like there's, I mean, most uh, young entrepreneurs who I talked to at least wanted to go through YC at some point for all of the reasons uh, mm-hmm. that, that you mentioned. So you go back there to work on AI stuff. So what, do you sprinkle AI fairy dust on all the entrepreneurs now, or what do you do? I wish I had that fairy dust. <laughs> I'd be <laughs> sprinkling it away if, if, if I had some. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm a partner at YC, and partners don't have exclusive focus. That is to say, the companies I work with will span the entire gamut. Like I mentioned earlier, a lot of the feedback that we give isn't specific to the industry anyway. We're, we're really relying on the founder for that. Um, however, I have a slight lean towards trying to help fund you know, the next great thousand AI companies with the, with the premise that, th- that there are some breakthrough technologies now that are going to make that possible today where it wasn't possible, you know, say five, ten years ago. Um, and there, uh, in particular, the, the one thing we did when I got to YC is we launched this thing called YCAI, which is YC's um, only other vertical that's kind of dedicated to AI companies. Uh, and companies that go through the vertical get the same YC experience that everyone else is getting, but they get a few domain-specific perks. Um, and all of these perks are basically modeled after the inf- the common infrastructure I saw at Apple that actually made it hard for startups to compete. Starting a real AI company today is much easier within Google or Apple than it is as a startup for three reasons primarily, I think. The first is you... Uh, lack density of talent. There's there's a lot of things that are on the fringe of research and you know commodity where you actually need researchers to help you build something. The second is compute infrastructure. If you're starting like say a company to provide automatic speech recognition as a service, um, you need to spend tens of thousands of dollars training models. Right. So there's this upfront cost 
that suddenly reminds us a lot about the startups of old. We had to go and rack servers. And then the third thing that you have if you're a large co that you don't have if you're a startup is data sets. You have access to proprietary data sets, which today, and this may change over time, but today are the kind of the currency for building anything smart. So what we try to do at YCAI is provide those three primitives to startups. So in terms of um, access to talent, they can book time uh, with OpenAI scientists kind of as if they were at you know, Google and you could book time with someone who works at Google Brain. Uh, in terms of access to proprietary computer infrastructure, we give these folks a lot, you know, at this point, north of a quarter of a million dollars in training time uh, on the various cloud services. Plus, we have a, uh, a company we partnered with to literally rack GPUs in San Jose in case anyone needs the latest and greatest. There's, by the way, a small, small sidebar. There's this f- um, fascinating shortage of the high-end GPUs on services like Amazon. And so there's this race to kind of get the GPUs now. Um, like the physical hardware? Like the physical, you can't, if you want like a thousand of the best GPUs on Amazon. And I do. And, and, and <laughs> mostly my, for my gaming. Cr- it, for gaming and my Chrome battery. Well, Chrome just destroys my laptop battery. Oh, that, this yeah. will help you. Good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, of course. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, hard, Nerd. It's, yeah, it's hard to get a hold of them. Carrot's like, oh, I use Safari, it's great. Uh, <laughs> um, and the third one is actually the hardest one to solve, but I think one of the most important ones, which is how can we give our startups um, common data sets uh, that don't exist today in the world so that they can train? Um, and it's, yeah, something that we're actively this working on. This was a complaint that Elon Musk actually made at Code on the interview that Google and Facebook had too much of the power in AI in terms of the programmers, the abilities to over, overwhelm any other startup that came, and that he was talking about open AI. Before we get to that, because I'd love to talk about where you think the real, the real AI is, because that, that suggests that only the big companies are mm. going to dominate the next era. Um, but, but before you get off of YC, you talked about the positive elements of it. Let's talk about some of the ones that are a little tougher. Is diversity? You look literally like the person I think would be a partner at AC. You know, a, a nice white guy with a geeky kind of thing and a nice sweatshirt. You're sitting here. No insult to you in that regard. But what are the thi- the challenges that you looked at when you came there? Because they, what do you think the things they need to improve on? Yeah. First if of all, to Harvard and they're letting in a lot of the same people, we're going to get the same result. Yeah. Um, the CEO happens to be black, so. Mm-hmm. You know, no, I get that. He's not here today because he's probably not as witty as me, but <laughs> um, I do think we're doing better than most. Um, second is uh, we do a lot. Um, uh, it was a big complaint of YC for a long time. That's yeah, and, 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 and I think Michael has done a very good job of trying to address it. We obviously will continue to do more, but you know, one thing we did in the previous, uh, well, in preparation actually for the winter batch is um, we went out of our way uh, every every single partner went out of our way, mostly on on Michael's direction, so he gets credit for all of this. On trying to recruit underrepresented founders and minorities, because we I think we can move the needle more than most organizations. Absolutely, for, that's why. Yeah, for two reasons. One is we operate at a fairly large volume, and the second is because, as we mentioned earlier, we're really a system to bring outsiders in. Uh, and so we went out of our way to try to recruit underrepresented founders. Um, in the various cities that we visit. In between YC batches, once a year, um, we, we actually send the partners on kind of a world, world tour. And um, we actually tried to instrument in our software uh, the proportion of people that partners are bringing in that are underrepresented, hmm. uh, which, is, which is a very, you know, it's, it, for us, it's, uh, it's kind of an important feedback loop when there's a little leaderboard of, you know, who's doing, which partner is bringing the most weight in in terms of um, underrepresented founders, and we kind of compare, and then we feel like we need to work harder towards that goal. So we, we are kind of both instrumenting software and, and procedure to try to recruit more underrepresented founders. What do you think the problem is? I mean, obviously, we don't have to get into the, 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 these topics now, obviously, around sexual harassment, but what do you think the issue has been. I think the issue is at an earlier. There's the sexual harassment stuff is I think much later in the game. I'm I'm more concerned about how do we get more underrepresented people to even apply for YC. And I think the issue is there's already a as we discussed earlier incorrect characterized image of the the successful founder. Mm-hmm. You know the Elon Musk I'm um, I'm Iron Man or the Jeff Bezos you know. Um, champagne, windmill. champagne windmill, and I, th- I think there's not enough understanding of, again, like how silly and small all these people seemed in their early times, and as a result, I think if you're underrepresented, you're thinking I'm, a, I feel all red about behind. There's no way I'm going to achieve, you know, what those guys achieved, and so I think the solution for this is to really try to emphasize like how 
silly some of these people seemed earlier in the career to kind of make it feel more approachable. Um, to me, that's that that's kind of the most important thing. Um, to to I, I I would hate. I I think I think our largest issue is that people self-edit, is that people don't. They, they know about YC, so we did a good job about promoting it, and they know what it does, but they, they, they don't even think they should apply. Um, so, that, so, so, I mean, the, the most actionable thing we can do is twofold. One is as partners, we try to go around espousing the gospel. And second is, I, th- I mean, I, th- I would love to start producing more content about um, people's earliest days because I, th- I think it very much humanizes the experience. Um, so those are two things I think we should be doing to move the needle. So you were uh, you mentioned this thing I think is interesting, which is that someone has to level the playing field if startups are going to compete with the giants when it comes to AI. And we're at this time where there is so much concern and suspicion around big tech and what happens if there's only three or four or five companies that can kind of control the world. I'd be curious to know what kinds of conversations you're having with the founders you're seeing about that and about um, whether you have been able to actually level the playing field or if you are still worried that the Google and Facebook just have you know, better access Google, than you, you Facebook, will. Facebook, Amazon, Apple. Microsoft. Yeah. Microsoft. Yeah. Well, yeah well, um, so I actually would be curious to get Kara's take on this, but for my reading of history books and Wikipedia pages, um, <laughs> IBM felt very, yes, very big. That's the hope. That's the hope. <laughs> no, of course. I mean, remember AOL was big and someone was talking about something the other day. I go, do you remember when we were scared of Microsoft? I mean, it, it does, It does. of course, things so, have a cycle. Yeah, and so things have a cycle and every generation needs to have its own existential you know, dilemma and threat. And so this is kind of ours. Um, so one, in the back of my mind, I'm hoping that, you know, at the end of the day, capitalism will continue. Large companies who create a lot of value become inefficient over time and up, young upstarts will, you know, fix them. Well, um, you didn't stay at Apple, so that's interesting. Like you wanted to go somewhere else to try. I mean, I think you're right. I think one of the issues is that these companies do, power does wane. They become less cohesive as a group of people. They get older, like all kinds of things. As They get tired, they get everything else. But it really does... It, it's predicated on the fact that there's another thing coming. You mm. know, what's the next thing? And some of these technologies do require what you were talking about—the three, you know, the three, the three or four things that are critical. And so they, it seems like they could take an advantage here. And there's more of them. It's not just Microsoft. It's six. They, of they them. also seem like they're better students of history than IBM mm-hmm. was, right? Yeah. Like, like everyone at a high level at Facebook is very aware of this phenomenon and is doing everything but, but they can to fight it There's six of them, not one. Off. It yeah. was IBM, and then it was Microsoft, and then it was Google, Google sort of, but Google's. But still, you know, you hope that uh, entropy will work. I think so. I mean, I actually, I mean, I, I think it'll take a while for another reason, which is um, kind of uh, Nietzsche's Ubermensch philosophy. And so I think that the, the, the other thing going on is a lot of those companies today are still being run by their founders. Right. Who right. are truly remarkable? Yeah, and, and so they're religious in a way. If you think about it, they're yeah, they are religious in a way. And you know, so hopefully over time, you know, Jeff Bezos gets you know more interested in launching himself into space, and <laughs> Zach runs for president, and right. uh, and then those companies you know kind of go the way of the IBM. Um, I do think there are very few people in the world working on the particular thing I'm working at because most people are not incentivized to do it. So I'm working on infrastructure to make it easier for startups to start up in the AI space. Um, There are very few organizations that that have that type of goal alignment. Um, And so my hope is that there are more of these. I also have this other crazy belief, in particular about the AI world, that, that makes me slightly more optimistic, which goes something like this. My belief is that what's happened is that Google has turned the AI problem into an infrastructure problem because that's what Google knows how to do. Google mm-hmm. knows how to crunch large numbers, and so they've taken all of this AI hype around neural nets and they've re- and and they're solving it the way they organizationally know how to solve problems, which mm-hmm. is Jeff Dean comes up with a way to parallelize everything <laughs> and do it you know really efficiently, really cheaply. But I wonder if there are other ways to build real AI. And of course, the premise for this is humans who seem to be generalizing and learning with much less compute power. Right. Um, and so m- one of my um, beliefs is that with the right amount of funding to the right places, real AI will emerge um, and it'll look completely different from what we have today. No, I would agree. Google's, ha- Google's good at making nickels. I don't know how else to put it. Yeah, exactly. And... It, 
I think around 40% of the AI research papers published today are published by Google Brain. Mm -hmm. And so they have the publishing volume. And what happens in academia is people just fast follow whatever is the latest fashion. Mm -hmm. And so you have this whole religion of, of folks working on, you know, massive, large-scale neural nets, um, you know, to try to understand what's inside images and text. But I actually think that's only one approach to the problem. Um, so one of my other goals is this other side project I have is this thing called AI Grant, um, which is kind of like a distributed nonprofit AI research lab where we try to, just like why Combinator funds interesting entrepreneurs around the world, we try to fund in interesting researchers around the world that are working on um, approaches that are not Google's approaches. So we're looking to bring research diversity into the ecosystem with the long-term hope being that one of those approaches works out and we end up finding, you know, a patent clerk in burn that ends up being Einstein type of thing. And if that works out and we manage to build something that's able to learn from far fewer examples, boy, then a lot of those moats we were describing earlier that Google have don't exist. Absolutely. Daniel, that's riveting. And we'll talk more about where AI is going. Yeah. Uh, when we get back, we're here with Daniel Gross. He is a partner at Y Combinator. Uh, he's been there for almost a year. He's focusing on AI, obviously. Um, we're also here with Casey Newton, the Silicon Valley editor of The Verge, and he's the host of an upcoming podcast called Converge. I also want to tell you about Too Embarrassed to Ask, my other podcast, which I host with Lauren Good from The Verge, except this week I practice a bit of Trumpian nepotism and replaced her with my son, Louis Swisher, and also Casey Newton. Louis, what do we talk about this week? Uh, we talk about a lot of things. Like what? Like, uh... Try to remember, you just spoke about them. <laughs> we talk about, uh... Snapchat? Yeah, we talk about how an English paper is more important than collusion. Okay, that's true, how, we discussed that. <laughs> about what I think, uh, as a representative of teenagers, about uh, social media apps, and you bring up Facebook again, which is still dead to teenagers. Okay, alright, okay. Um, Anything else? Just, well, just usual stuff, just... Okay, and Casey, did you have a good time? I had an amazing time. All right, what did you learn here, Casey? I learned what it's like to uh, have Thanksgiving with the Swishers. <laughs> Lots <laughs> of yelling. It was a great discussion. Lots of yelling. Oh, yeah, just it's, wait. It was a great discussion. We hope you'll go listen to it. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. We're here on Recode Decode with Daniel Gross in the red chair. He's a partner at Y Combinator. We've been talking about really riveting questions around AI, which is the next frontier of computing, which are most it's the big buzzword, at least in Silicon Valley. And it's talking about how you take the power out of the hands of the big players like Google, pretty much primarily Google, but Facebook, Apple, and others. We're also here with Casey Newton, a Silicon Valley editor of The Verge. And Daniel was just making a big point of how do you get uh, people thinking in different ways beyond what the, what the big companies want to set, the agendas they want to set. And you're, you're saying you have, you have this nonprofit that you started up, and I wanted to know who are who is applying for these grants? Are these uh, sort of like postdocs or undergraduates, or, or who's actually come in, and who, who are you giving money to? Yeah, so just like um, why Combinator founders kind of span the entire chasm, the same is is true here as well. We've had we've given out thirty grants to date. We've had a, uh, about um, sixteen hundred people apply, and they've ranged from people who are currently working at Google Brain and just want funding to explore this random side project they have to seventeen year olds in, in random pockets Don't of the world. Don't give money to the Google brain people, but go ahead. All right. <laughs> Look, I mean, at the end of the day, we'll fund anything that is interesting and diverse. Um, all, right, all right. And so I appreciate your sentiment, but yeah, I reject your idea. Right. <laughs> right, fine. We have a lot of money over there. Um, Very good food. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, they mint money so they can afford to hand it out. So I mean, we're often most excited when we come across someone very unconventional. I mean, there, there's a team of um, students uh, working on a project, their project, and they're they're all in, literally in high school. And that to me is where are they from? They are from I don't exactly know. I mean, they're somewhere in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, we tried to fund people internationally as well. What's the most interesting, unusual? Thing? Probably the, in terms of projects, mm -hmm. um, the most interesting project. Well, boy, there are a lot. So one that's very understandable because some of these are knee deep in research, but one that's very understandable is there's a team of folks um, working on trying to use this thing called generative adversarial networks, we can get into what that is later on, to anonymize um, medical data and uh, effectively build some type of AI that can look at private x-rays, so your x-rays, and it kind of learns what x-rays look like from the private data, and then it becomes smart enough to generate its own x-ray images that are inherently not private that other people can train on. So this would be somewhat the equivalent of me like going into a, a room, learning a lot of Shakespeare, and then kind of speaking out Shakespeare prose. 
It's, it's actually not Shakespeare, but it kind of feels like it. Now, this is really important because it would allow us to have massive data sets that are, quote unquote, public that others can train on. That were private. Mm-hmm. Our so this is like a mm-hmm. very important fundamental building block if it's possible to do. I love, I love the phrase generative adversarial network, which is like the perfect description of Twitter. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, that, that does sound like a really cool project. Okay, so I want to talk about a big AI idea because uh, I wrote this story about AI this year that I wound up feeling sort of bad about. Uh-oh. So a year and a half or so ago, I started noticing YouTube recommendations getting really good. YouTube is a place where my niche interests are, and so it knows that I love cooking. It knows that I love video games. Are and you watching man, those tasty videos? I, lo- I love tasty videos. They are hypnotic. I like, also have I- determined through Kara Swisher AI what Casey wants. It's a cable. <laughs> But go ahead. Yeah, yeah we, we share a cable password. But anyways, um, so I, I get so fascinated by this. So I call up YouTube and I say, I've got to hand it to you, gang. Y'all have cracked it. How are you doing this? They say, come on down. We'll show you. So I go interview these people and I write about how they built this algorithm. And it was like, thumbs up. Two months later, we start seeing the stories that these same algorithms are being used to surface the absolute most terrifying videos to children, um, where there's just sort of all sorts of really problematic stuff where uh, weird creators are sort of picking up like beloved children's characters and then making these really bad animations, like showing them in uh, situations where they're distressed. Anyway, set the content aside, the point is the algorithms are the same, right? And, And something that I observed was the reason that YouTube wasn't aware of this is precisely because their own experiences are so personalized. Mm. I, visiting YouTube every day, only see an AI that's bringing me cool stuff. These poor kids are seeing Peppa Pig getting slaughtered at the dentist's office. Whoa. Yeah, so so how do you think about building AIs that we actually retain some level of oversight into when the results are so individualized and and it becomes like opaque to the outside observers? Yeah, I think... uh... What a lot of teams that are productionizing AI today will tell you is that very frequently they take the simple approach over the complicated, what's called, I guess, black box end-to-end system um, because it's impossible to debug those. So very concretely speaking, most of the, I think almost all of the companies working on autonomy are actually, you know, they have, at, at the end of the day, when, when all the decisions need to be made about whether you hit, hit the brakes or not, that stuff is actually very heuristic driven. It's not a black box neural net because they need to be able to debug it. It's a true byproduct that at the end of the day, when you either uh, are doing end-to-end learning um, or you have a highly personalized system, you have no clue what's going on. And most importantly, your, your feedback mechanisms uh, are do not correlate to long-term human happiness. They correlate to engagement. And that is, I think, the actual problem. Hmm. Um, and I think it's compounded by the fact that uh, engagement correlates to kind of short-term happiness, unclear what's happening long-term. And I'm sure you've seen, I think, Tristan Harris's work right. yeah. uh, around different apps and what, if you use more, you actually become less happy with. And I think this is one of, one of the main worries that I personally have around AI, uh, which is we're going to build you know, an incredibly sweet, irresistible cookie that we're just going to want more and more and more of, until you feel bloated. And, and there's no way that regulation will catch up in time. Uh, and so suppressing the urge to go to YouTube and get more engagement from the thing that the AI is showing you is going to be harder and harder to resist. Um, And so I don't exactly know what the solution is. I think the best thing we can do today is actually to do more of that time well spent stuff. The more we can radicalize people about the fact that, you know, with, with the help of AI, your Facebook news feed, your Twitter feed, your YouTube feed are getting sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. But that may not be what you want long term. The more people become self-aware of it, you right. know, or or having people in leadership that do think about something besides constant growth. And and there's other ways to, you know, the, the, I think the, their business models are predicated on engagement to the to the to the extreme, and they don't even think about it. I think they don't like how to make it more useful or more. Um, they want to know. Push I, that red button. Push I, the button. Push I'd like. The... I'd like to offer a slightly more complex narrative, right. if possible. Sure. Um, I think they do think about it, but I think it's always hard at the end of the day when your forcing function, yeah, is engagement, growing quarterly earnings. It's hard for that stuff to get prioritized. So I guess the twist is, I actually believe they're fundamentally good people. I just think they are. Um, they can't beat 
the the incentive structure machine that they have in front of them. Yeah. Except that they're in charge of it. No, that's not, that's not that's such a, an out. Like they I can the same thing on gender issues. The same thing on mm. everything. They've all like were we to understand they're they're billionaires in charge of, of everything, and so they really do have choice. You do have choices when you're building companies. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. They have choices, but it's like it is a common refrain in Silicon Valley that the incentives always win. And like on, on diversity stuff, I think the incentives are actually the opposite. The incentives are clearly to be more diverse. Uh, when it comes to engagement, though, it seems like the incentive is like keep coming back and keep coming back more. Maybe, and share more. maybe, maybe not. That's what I'm yeah. saying. Like a lot of one of the recent things I've been thinking about is when you're talking about finding talent, why Combinator anywhere in the world? I am certain there's a a, a, a girl geek in Afghanistan who could have done something amazing that yeah. is never going to. And because they, they won't reach her, they don't get her, they don't reach her. Or a girl here in, in um, a person of color here in uh, Oakland who mm. doesn't get reached and maybe they're the next Mark Booker or the solver of cancer or something else. And the, the structure is thus that they can't ever get up. And so that's what I think about is that they ha- these people have choices um, to, to move, to be creative with their business plans than in a way that isn't so it's like cigarette makers it's as far as i can tell i guess that's right i think it requires uh, a fundamental almost religious like belief in the narrative in order to overcome the organizational incentives and I, and i will say that i was blown away when i was at apple how rigorous the executive team's belief in customer privacy is to the detriment apple's the one that doesn't doesn't yeah. rely on advertising and right. demented uh, obsession of attention, like the attention slot machine. Mm-hmm. Apple's the only company that actually does it. Now, they could do a lot more on the Apple yeah. devices to just have utilities, like Uber. You don't spend a lot of time with your Uber. Like, I think I'll look at the Uber app again, but you certainly do with the Facebook app or the Twitter app. And so they could do things to move things in the way the, the iPhone is structured that would radically change uh, things if they wanted to. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's just, I think the challenge is always... You know, you're running Apple. And so there's that initiative. You've got constrained engineering. Everyone's constrained all the time. So you, you can either spend your time on that or you could spend your time on like making sure the screen for the next iPhone looks even better. Because <laughs> everything is choices it's when you're raising children, when you're doing anything. I, but you, you, that's not true. That's, that's, their, that's their argument is we have to just do this. It, 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 it plays into actually Apple, for example's very business model, which is we don't do advertising. We don't, yep. And we're going to make this an even better phone experience for you. And then you'll want to use an Apple phone because it's not littered with, with Walt Moss used to call craplets, do you remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and a lot of these services are craplets is really what it is. I, or very, sugar or whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, no, I I very much agree with you. I'm I, I'm just trying to say that it's it's actually it's really hard. It's I, I guess I worry that a lot of people are as a result going to just pick various executives at Facebook or at Google and just say, "Oh, they're evil." But it's I actually not evil. I think the narrative is like we're asking them to climb Everest. And they're not, they're able to do uh, Hawk Hill, mm-hmm. you know? I guess right. if they weren't billionaires and they didn't run the world, I guess <laughs> I'd feel bad for them. But I don't, I don't. I think it's, it's not true. I think they have the inf- influence and power. Anyway, I'm not well, going to run I think the action, I think the action item for us is the, the way, like, I, I was blown away when I was inside at Apple at how much some of these blogs influence the internal culture oh, and absolutely. dialogue. You know, Hence when Marco why. writes something. Right. Marco Arment. Arment. Yeah, Mar- Marco Arment. He's moving the organization. Absolutely. And so I think the move is to do more of the time well spent stuff because that stuff internally gets people talking yeah. and can reprioritize. I, I think it's one of the big tech trends to watch next year because not only is it you know people like us saying Facebook uh, and others ought to look at this, it's the, it's the former Facebook employees, right? It's the people yeah. who built the like button that are mm-hmm. saying we need to watch out. One other point on, on Facebook I just wanted to make, I'm, I'm hearing this phrase more in the culture where people say to me some variation of, I'm trying to spend less time in the newsfeed, which is such an interesting thing. You think of every other product, uh, people's problem is getting them to use it at all. When it comes to Facebook, people are saying, I'm trying to use it less, which suggests that they're failing. Or um, slash Twitter or whatever. Oh, you're right, and, and people say it about Twitter too, but it like, really seems to come up with, with Facebook. And in, in part, that's a story about what an amazing thing they've built, uh, in part using some of these pattern recognition techniques. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm at the point, honestly, where... I. I like I do things where I, I openly feel like an addict who's trying to support. Like for example, I don't bring my phone into my bedroom. I have a charger outside. 
I, I, That's a very Ariana Huffington thing for you to do. Well, I don't know why, but I'll I guess I'll take that as a compliment. No, she has a little bed for herself. When, when I go running uh, in the morning, I try to just run with a watch, and that's like my time away from the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's increasingly hard. And the generation I worry a lot about is if you're a kid now, I don't know how you do homework. I don't you know. have so many distractions. Because it's you against a thousand data science engineers at Facebook trying right. to make the most compelling right. thing possible. And, and you're going to lose. Homework's going to lose. Facebook's always telling you, you know, people pick what they want. I'm like, but you have a thousand engineers making those kids push the red button. Don't, aren't, don't you? Figuring out how to. Actually, it's interesting because we just did a podcast with my son, Louie. I think they're a little more control of themselves. It seems like that they, they really can like discount and throw out things rather quickly. Yeah, so Louis, we did we'd podcast with him and, and Louis, and I think a lot He's of teens like him, do see through some of this bullshit. Like they are aware mm. on some level that they are being played and so they're going to get out of Snapchat what they want to get out of Snapchat yeah. and, huh. and no more. Yeah, I would agree. Th- that's, I think so. Um, yeah, there's another interesting narrative, which is that humans adapt very quickly at the end of the day. And so just like Americans are able to process carbohydrate actually much more efficiently than people who are having it for the first time, mm. kind of made a fact, but it should feel like it's right. Um, it kind of feels like kids would just adjust very quickly. Or, will. or your idea of like these things pass, these companies get less powerful because well, he's not using Facebook. He's using right. Instagram, but he's not using, he certainly isn't using it. And it's really, in, and like the disdain is like, oh, why would I do that? Right, like, I would never use Facebook, <laughs> but Instagram, yeah, I'll spend three hours a yeah. day there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I, I feel like we're, we're yes. maybe coming to a close. So yes. I thought maybe you could give us like some cool AI stuff to cool. get excited about. Just yeah. to be super cool. Yeah, um, all right, so I'm actually, the, the technology I'm most excited about uh, is uh, this concept I mentioned earlier um, called a generative adversarial network. Without getting into the details, the, the, the TLDR is that the computer is able to generate content based on examples that it's learned. And actually, the way it does it is kind of cool. Um, and, and to your point about Twitter, it's basically the same thing. So the way it works is there's basically two AIs, um, and one is kind of a con man, and one is kind of a cop. And the way it gets really smart at, say, generating, I'm sure you've all seen images of like fake bedrooms or whatever, is the cop is trained on, on a little bit of what reality looks like. And the con man is trying to constantly kind of counterfeit the cop. And they get smarter by fighting each other, you know, one against the other, against revolution after revolution after revolution. And so they're able to develop like a much um, more deep sense of intelligence around something. Anyway, why is this useful? So the cop is learning from the con man then, presumably. Yeah, and con man is trying to figure, con man is like, oh, okay, cop caught me this time. Let me try to slight variation on this image. I'm going to send it to the cop. And, you know, he's going to try to figure out whether this image is legitimate or not. That's what they're fighting about. Right. I, I'm going I'm, I'm to generate an image. You'll tell me if it's real or not. So Kahneman is constantly like... But the Kahneman is the teacher in that way. It's kind of an They're both teaching each other, okay, yeah. Right. I, yeah. I understand you're kind of looking for a Plato-esque metaphor here, but <laughs> they're both teaching each other. No, but it's interesting. It, it's yeah. like Trump in the U.S. electorate. There, Go ahead. Yeah, that's what oh, I was no. waiting for. Um, <laughs> Um, it's funny. Once you learn this concept of GAN, you actually end up using that metaphor quite a bit, or I have found. Um, <laughs> anyway, cool science. What is this useful for? So one is that anonymization thing I mentioned earlier. Another very practical one is there's a cool company that's effectively building um, a version of uh, Photoshop or Illustrator where if you're an animator today at Pixar, not only do you have to like draw the frames, you have to like color them in. And what this thing does is it basically, you, you, you make like an initial color palette and it kind of learns from that. And then you draw literally like four or five quick lines and it generates this beautiful image of a scene. Wow. And I'm excited about this because obviously it'll make life at P- folks for uh, Pixar easier, which they mean now need with the loss <laughs> yes. of last year. Yes. <laughs> um, um, but, but ima- you know, imagine just like GarageBand made it possible for everyone to kind of be a musician, imagine that for art. And a really personal so whose who's art is it then? Is the first four lines, is the original artist, is it based on their stuff or does it plagiarize? Well, we're not stoned enough to have that conversation, I, know, I, know, I feel I like. Um, anyway, so that's one um, uh, kind of a weird, slightly mm-hmm. weirder one that's more interesting than me just me espousing the virtues of self-driving cars and trucks. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I think um, another really interesting one that's related, it's generative, um, is this, there's, it's actually a YC company. It's called Lyrabird. And what they do is they'll Lyrabird. take... Lyrabird? Lyrabird. They take about two minutes of your voice from this podcast, possibly, and then they're able to build a text-to-speech engine um, 
of your voice. So they can make Siri sound like you, like me, like Arnold Schwarzenegger with about two minutes. Yeah. This will fundamentally uh, undermine all credibility in the media for the rest of time. (laughs) And by the way, if you ever hear me say anything that sounds untoward, I guarantee you Lyra Bird has something to do with it. Definitely. I don't think that. I think that's not the case. And so today, but but it's it's an interesting, it'll be an interesting societal change because today when you hear someone's voice on the phone, your default assumption as a human is, oh, it's real. It's them. And it's not going to be the case, I think, maybe two years from now. Right. And so imagine like you're a CEO and somebody says, you know, hey, uh, Jeff Bezos is on the line. And you're like, all right, Jeff, here's the product roadmap. And it turns out you were talking to Tim Cook. Yeah. That would probably never happen. Because you know, you, you know <laughs> these are the games Tim needs to yeah. play in order to get an edge. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So there's the dystopian narrative, which is that this is the end of the world. Fake news will get even more fake, what have you. I personally believe that, you know, uh, we'll adapt fairly quickly. Today, when you look at an image on the onion, you know that it's not real. It's photoshopped. And so that will happen to voice. So we'll mm-hmm. learn pretty quickly. And there's similar techniques for videos. I'm sure you've seen them online where they got... Barack Obama to at least look like he's saying something that he's not. So I just think it's going to be another um, interesting part of, you know, 2020 where there's just going to be a lot of content that is very blatantly not real. Mm -hmm. Um, The consumer benefits of of this, though, are pretty cool. I mean, it'd be nice to be able to have any audiobook you want read out by, you know, your favorite comedian um, or any form of content you want read out by. If they want to read it. So right. yeah, so there's some really interesting uh, open-ended law that that the, the guys are figuring out now around is this considered impersonation, which is totally legal to do, is it considered copy of the voice? So Oh wow. I would yeah. I would sell That's my cool. voice for a pretty low price, I think. <laughs> Maybe I'll get the price up when the podcast launches. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, don't yeah, think, I think they you want your voice. Right spread now. spread it across the land. <laughs> Let everyone hear your voice. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. So um just finishing up, any predictions for we're going into twenty eighteen? Anything you think people should be thinking is hyped or or the opposite, which is something people should be paying attention to. Yeah. Um I think well, so one thing that I think is hype that will just take longer than everyone expects. Is I do think rollout of self-driving cars will take a long time. And because? Uh, well, a couple of reasons. One is uptick of cars take a long time period. So even if the car was available for sale today, it would be like three years until they were mass, uh, you know, available in mass. Second is uh, re- I think regulation is always going to lack. And by the way, I mean, by self-driving cars, I mean there's like a lane where there's self-driving cars in it. I think that will take like five, six years, if not 10. Mm-hmm. Um, lastly, I think that... Um, we have in front of us, a few, a few, sadly, I think, a few more gnarly cases where horrific accidents that actually look really bad, look really bad, like a truck overturned, you know, whatever, uh, happen. And, of course, then the, there'll be a negative backlash against them. And so I think we have lots to go through lots of that. a few more cycles of that before it actually ends up rolling out. So that's one that I think we're a little bit too optimistic about. Um, although, obviously, startups are making tremendous progress, and, and so is Waymo. Um, well, not in court, but go ahead. Okay, not in court. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's your jurisdiction to cover. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I meant Uber. Not yeah, Waymo's Uber. doing Waymo's great doing in great. court. <laughs> yeah, the Waymo lawyers <laughs> deserve their holiday bonuses. I, I got to say, year. Judge Alsip Love for him. president. Yeah, I know. man's He's amazing. Great. We pro- we profiled him recently. A dedicated ham radio operator. Yeah, it's interesting. I wow. mean, he really handed it to them. It was we were talking to some Uber executives just the other night and. They were like, what are we going to do? They're like, really? like, uh, And I was like, you need to fire your entire legal team. <laughs> like, anyone there pre... Last week. Last week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that, which is, you know, it's tough, but it, it is moving forward. It is moving forward. Um, that's interesting. Anyway, so um, one, other, uh, one other interesting category is there's a plethora of companies building silicon data- dedicated to AI or machine learning. Um, you know, effectively trying to do what Google has with the TPU, but for everyone else. Um, I think this is going to be a fascinating. That's ca- interesting. Yeah, fascinating category to watch because there's a bunch of different narratives here. One is that um, uh, there's going to be another Nvidia or Intel made uh, because effectively GPUs are trying to do a lot of things. So if you shrink it down to the bare essentials, um, you can get. Um, something far more efficiently done. Second is that NVIDIA will be this company and they'll just figure it out. And act, all of these companies getting funded, you know, GraphCore or, or Cerebrus or a bunch of other pre-launch ones, um, it's just a byproduct of hype and people don't realize that actually doing a tape out of a chip is really complicated and it's a bunch of software guys just assuming that AI chips will happen as opposed to anyone who's grounded in reality. Um, 
I, th- I think the, the third, you know, the third narrative, which is I think probably the most likely one, is a bunch of large co sadly end up acquiring um, one of these companies uh, because they need it at the end of the day in order to satisfy their cost structure. In particular, it's worth noting in the AI chip market, it's really split into two. There's folks working on um, what's called inference, which is to say, you know, you're in the field, you're trying, you're, you get, you got the drone out there, it's flying, and it's trying to infer what it's seeing versus training, which is you got the data scientist in the room and he needs to train a crazy model. Um, I'm really excited intellectually um, about the training stuff because I think that there's a lot of things that are not possible today um, that will be possible without any interesting algorithmic improvements or breakthroughs just by getting better silicon. Hmm. So today, most neural nets that we train you know, are really like a couple hundred layers deep. But if you want to get to a world where you have a neural net that's thousands and thousands of layers deep, you actually need silicon that's far more efficient to it. And the reason, one of the reasons I think why we'll need to do that is if we truly want to understand language for a bunch of technical reasons we could never get into because we're out of time, um, I think we're going to need a very, very deep neural net. So the, the whole AI silicon space is, I think, one really interesting one worth watching that may yield one of the few examples we'll be able to point to as kind of an AI company as opposed to a company that uses AI to yeah. do something. That's riveting. That's actually the most riveting yeah. thing you've said so far. Oh, but thanks. I'm going to put good you on the no, spot. No, for Finally, we get to <laughs> something good. <laughs> but I'm going to put you on the spot. Very, just one minute. Yeah. Co- um, What's up? Not enterprise, but consumer. Hmm. One quick. What happens with consumer? Yeah, you're you're looking. You look at other things. You don't. They don't just stick you in the AI area, right? In the AI AI room. Go (laughs) for the AI room. Yeah. Um. I'll tell you. Um. Here's here's one here's one weird one. I would gladly fund like social networks all day. Hmm. Whoa. Yeah. I'm excited about that because uh, no one else wants to do it. Ah. Um, And I and I and I here's so here's my framework for it. Um, my framework for it is twofold. One is I kind of think that these things are much more like TV shows or fashion trends than they are like technology companies. And so at the end of the day, Simon Cowell wasn't the, you know, wasn't the first creator of no. a TV show. He just made the right TV show. And second, in terms of moat, because I know what you're going to tell me. You're going to tell me Facebook will crush all I of love us. this idea. Um, not at all. I think there are a bunch of different areas that feel so weird that Facebook – you know, wouldn't even bother going after them. I'll give you an example. If there was like a new desktop only social network, I can totally imagine that being something that PMs will never chase. It's not on mobile, desktop shrinking. And so it actually gets big. Um, So that type of weird is something I'm excited about. The other interesting consumer thing that I hope happens, I hope, hope, hope happens, is finally a non-Bitcoin consumer-facing experience for any of these blockchain or crypto technologies. And it's not clear to me what that's going to be. The but AOL of Bitcoin. The, I know it sounds crazy. Yes, yes let's bring back Steve for, Case. Yes, bring him back. <laughs> he talks about Bitcoin. Daniel, this has been riveting. This is really fun. Um, and thank you for talking to us. Um, and thanks for coming thank on the so show. Thank you so much for having me. No, you're very funny. You're coming back. You're, <laughs> you actually can speak in full sentences, which is nice, too. Um, and thank you, Casey, who you cannot. But no, oh, you can't. You did a great job burn. co-hosting. And we have three more to go. Um, and get busy on doing Casey's voice for yeah. Lyrebird or whatever. Mm-hmm. Sounds um, good. Yeah. Yeah, We're sounds not, I'm going to have a generative podcast. That's all <laughs> the doing. Hello, this is Casey Newton. Be very funny. Imagine your tweets read out in your voice. <laughs> I like it. That's a million dollar uh, idea right there. Wow. It's really not. It's Fun. like a ten, ten <laughs> thousand dollar idea. I was thinking ten dollars, ten oh, cents. Sucks. If you it's enjoyed brutal. the interview as much as we did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first list of future episodes Click. or catch up on Hush Up, you guys. Catch up on previous episodes. You can find more than 150 past interviews in whatever app you use to listen to this or on our website recode.net slash podcasts if you have a minute please leave us a review on apple podcasts that helps other people find the show now that you're done with this you should check out our other recode radio podcast on recode media with peter kafka you'll hear no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment I also was too embarrassed to ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge, where I answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference. And keep an eye out for Casey's podcast, Converge, which is coming soon. The Verge also has other great podcasts for you to check out, including The Vergecast. And why'd you push that button? And as Daniel has just told us, because some jerk of a programmer at Facebook made us. Uh, thank oh, you. Again, reframing my words. So smart. I know. That's that's why I'm the top. Uh, thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Recode Decode. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here at my usual time on Monday. Tune in then.